All right, so this is the last week in 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, um, I'm excited about that uh, because it's nice to have a completion, like we finished something, we did it. Um, but it also gets me excited about the next book, which can cause problems for me because this week when I was supposed to be studying 2 Corinthians 13, I was already studying our next book, Galatians, like looking ahead, like, wow, I can't wait to get to Galatians. But then I had to remind myself, but first I have to finish 2 Corinthians. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to finish up this book. Uh, and, and just as a reminder, if you're not sure what we're doing, if you haven't been around for a while, uh, we're in this process of going through the whole New Testament in five-ish years by taking one chapter every week and just working our way through books of the New Testament. Uh, the reason I'm doing that is the last time I went through the New Testament, it took me 14-ish years. And I thought to myself, for a number of people, um, they didn't get to hear a lot of that. And so by going a little bit faster this time, that will give me permission to go super slow next time. And uh, really bear down on some of these concepts. But uh, anyway, here we are, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Paul is going to continue on his idea here. Uh, ultimately, in this book, he wants these Corinthians to begin to repent of some of the sin that he's pointed out in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians uh, before he visits them, because what he really wants to do is build them up, not have to correct them. He feels like that's his real ministry, is to build up and encourage and edify believers, but when there's sin in the midst of the church, he cannot just leave it unaddressed. And so he's going to kind of hammer that point home. Hey, if you guys would take care of your business before I get there, it can be an enjoyable visit. So uh, verse one, Paul says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. So now, third time, Paul is getting ready to visit this church in Corinth. He went there and he planted the church. And then somewhere between first Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's actually made a visit to the church. That would be his second visit there. Now he's preparing to come a third time. And it seems like in each of these situations where he's been there in the past, and in addition to his two letters, he has been trying to confront the church in Corinth about some sinfulness in chapter. In 1 Corinthians, it was uh, kind of two things. It was divisions within the church. Uh, and then the second thing that they were really struggling with was a specific instance of sexual immorality within the church. And so Paul is hoping that by the time he comes back a third time, some of these things will be dealt with. Uh, another thing that he's been struggling with a lot in this book, really, I guess, two things. Uh, one was that they had made a promise to give financially to the church of Jerusalem. They haven't fulfilled that promise yet. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, they have been... Um, taken in by some false teachers who have been proclaiming that uh, the Apostle Paul is not really filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and because of that, his ministry isn't real, and so Paul's had to now defend himself, not because he's so great, but because the Christ who is in him is so great, and he wanted the people of Corinth to see that, because they were judging 
based entirely on outside appearance. These other apostles were more attractive and they were better speakers. So obviously, and they were charging more money. So obviously they must be better preachers. And Paul says, no, in fact, my weakness is what makes my ministry so powerful. The reality that it's Jesus Christ who's working through me. So he kind of quotes now this uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 at the second half of this verse, first verse, since the third time I'm coming to you, and just like in the Old Testament law, everything is confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, he's just saying you've had three chances. It's like three strikes and you're out. If I show up and you haven't dealt with this, I will have to get angry with you. And as parents, you know, we've kind of had some of those same conversations with our kids. You know, we shout downstairs at them when they're getting out of hand. Hey, keep calm down or I will come calm you down. Like we have these kind of like ability as parents to recognize we give a little bit of space, let them have their chance to solve the problem first. But eventually, if they don't deal with it, you have to get involved. And that's where Paul is. He feels like he's given them a couple of chances. He's warned them that they need to repent of the sinfulness that's going on within their church. And now he's saying to them, I'm going to have to deal with this. But it would be way better if you dealt with it first so I didn't have to. That's really what he's trying to hope for. Uh, now that Old Testament principle of every fact being established by two or three witnesses is pulled forward in the New Testament by Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 18. And you're welcome to turn with there if you'd like. But Matthew 18, Jesus uses this to kind of help us understand how we can rightly deal with disciplining uh, sinful people within the church. And so that's laid out for us. He says in verse 15, uh, the first witness, I would say, the first circumstance, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So that's the first thing, go privately to them. The second, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So the first time you confront them privately, the second time you bring a couple of witnesses along. So it's just this kind of gentle progression of the discipline. But ultimately, if they're unwilling, he says in verse 17, he, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you have uh, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's building this progressive discipline model for the church. Uh, what I think is powerful and important about this, though, is it gives the opportunity for repentance to happen before it has to be a huge confrontation where everybody gets involved. So the beauty of this is it goes down to the individual level, that first and foremost... If somebody has sinned against you, you have a responsibility to bring that up to them and ask them to deal with it. And it's not a situation where you begin to gossip and share it with everybody else. Right at the beginning, it's one-on-one. It's, -on -one. it's just the two of you. The great thing about that is if they repent in that, nobody else needs to know about their sin. Their reputation is intact. It's kind of a beautiful way for that to work. The second, though, if they're not willing to respond to that situation, you still have to kind of deal with it. There's still sinfulness that's going on. You have to do something. But now you bring along two or three witnesses. You've, you've kind of elevated the peer pressure a little bit. You've progressed the discipline along just a little bit. But again, the goal is that you can bring them to a place of repentance and restore the broken relationship. Ultimately, though, he says, if it's not dealt with in those first couple of times, you have to take it before everybody in the church. It has to be made very public. 
I don't know if when Paul was writing this, he knew just how public this was going to be for the Corinthians, that we would still be reading about this 2,000 years later. Oh, those Corinthians, I tell you what. And we never actually get to hear, there's no like third Corinthians that says, and they repented. We're just kind of left out there for us, right? These poor Corinthian people. Uh, they're all dead now, it's fine, but uh, not as a result of the discipline, I don't think. Um, <laughs> But ultimately, it's this kind of progression of the, the discipline in order to get them to come to a place of repentance. That's what Paul's doing. But he's now at the point where it's like, okay, it's serious now, guys. You really need to deal with this. Uh, I do think, though, there is a piece of this where we first need to uh, just take it at that individual personal level, that we have a responsibility ourselves to be examining our own self for our own sin. And that's really what Paul is struggling with here. It's this idea that they're kind of judging him, but they're not so much judging themselves. And so ultimately, uh, he says, you've been looking for the proof of Jesus Christ in me, which it was a thing that they were doing because they didn't think he was acting leadery enough. He wasn't powerful enough in speech or in presence. He was just kind of this older, weaker guy, and his speech wasn't amazing. He didn't have these great, powerful sermons. So they were kind of downplaying him. And so because of that, he's like, look, if, if, you, if you want me to unleash the tiger, I will, if that's what it takes to get you to understand that I'm led by Jesus Christ. It really is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a malfunction in our human species is the way I would say that. That we have this feeling that the biggest, tallest, loudest person is the best leader. No, they're the one that you follow because they won't shut up. Like, what is it going to take to get this guy to be quiet? I will go wherever you want. Just stop yelling at me, right? That's not real leadership. That's not. That's forcing somebody into something. But it's this weird misconception we have. And because of that, we oftentimes end up with bad leaders because we choose the tallest, most attractive, loudest person as our leaders. Because we feel like that's somehow a leadership quality. But it's really not. The true leaders lead uh, in a different way. They lead by going first and people will then naturally follow them. Uh, it was uh, something that was pointed out to me early on in my ministry we were having a meeting. The senior pastor had left the church, and I called a group of guys together. I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? And they're like, well, you're our leader. What are we going to do? I'm like, how am I the leader? They're like, you called the meeting. We showed up. It's pretty obvious at this point who the leader is. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> um, but that, that same kind of concept, like you don't force people into submission is not leadership. That's not leadership. Forcing people into submission is domination. But it's not leadership. They were used to being dominated. And so that's what they were looking for in their leaders in their church. But that's not true Christ-centered leadership. We saw that Jesus was a leader, but it was because he was the servant of all. Because he was gentle and lowly in spirit that people followed him. It was his kindness that led us to repentance. It's a different picture of leadership. And so Paul points out that in verse 4, that's what Jesus was. He was crucified because of weakness yet he lives because of the power of God. We also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. That's where Paul found the strength when he was fully surrendered to the will of God. That's where he found the power of God worked through his ministry the best. The same example of Jesus. His greatest moment of weakness was when he was crucified on the cross. But God accomplished his most powerful thing in providing the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' death on the cross. 
And then when God resurrects him from the dead, it's this kind of powerful moment for us where we can really begin to see the power of God working out in our weaknesses. That's what Paul's saying. This is what I was doing. I was just modeling Jesus Christ to you. Allowing in my weakness, in my surrender, in my humility, in my lowliness, allowing the power of God to work instead of in the power of Paul. That's the way he wanted the Corinthians to go. Again, the problem was they were judging him and not judging themselves. That's why in verse 5, he says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or you do not, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. He's just trying to bring out that same principle that Jesus brought out in Matthew 7. Like, judge yourself first before you judge others. In the way that you judge yourself, judgment will be brought onto you. In the way that you judge others, judgment will be brought. So he gives that example in Matthew chapter 7. He says, so there's the guy with the log in his eye, and he's trying to take the speck out of his brother's eye. It's kind of awkward. Like, it's really hard to get to somebody when you have a log sticking out of your eye. He says, remove the log from your own eye first, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is what he wants them to do. He says, you guys are judging me as to whether or not I'm operating in the power of Jesus Christ. But as he told them in chapter 12, he's been demonstrating it through signs and wonders and miracles, not through loud voices and being perfectly shaped. The power came from God working through the Apostle Paul, and that should have been the things that the Corinthians saw. So now Paul is telling the Corinthians, and I think God now recording this throughout history for us, he's telling us to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. Now what's interesting, he doesn't give us like a standardized test. He doesn't give us like this long list of things. If you do this, 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 and this, you are clearly in the faith. He really only gives us One thing, and that one thing is that Jesus Christ is in you. So verse 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? This is the way that we determine if we're in the faith. This is the thing that we're looking for, is Jesus Christ in you? Which is such an abstract thought for us. It really is kind of difficult for us to grasp what that means. So we kind of have to hunt around throughout the scriptures to see if Paul has used this picture anywhere else and if he's given us any other explanation. Uh, And actually he has in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole paragraph. Well, it feels like a paragraph. It's actually just one sentence. Thank you, Paul. Verse 14 through 19 is one very long run-on sentence. But in verse 17, he gives us the answer. Uh, So just kind of keep your eyes on verse 17 in Ephesians 3. He says this in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The answer there in verse 17 is, how do you know Christ is in you? He is in you 
through faith. Now this becomes important. For many Christians, we judge whether or not we're Christians based on our works. But that's not how God judges who Christians are. He bases it on their faith. And so if you're asking the question, is Christ in me? I would ask the question back to you. Are you fully relying on Jesus Christ for your salvation? Is all of your faith and all of your hope of salvation based on one thing, the faith in Jesus Christ? If there's anything else in there, there's a problem. Uh, Let me say it this way. If you say to yourself, I am headed to heaven because I have faith in Jesus Christ, and as soon as you throw the and in there, that's where we have a problem. As soon as you start to put this other list of things, I am know that I'm heading to heaven because I have faith in Jesus Christ and I've attended church quite regularly. And I read my Bible regularly and I pray regularly. Wait, you were saved by grace through faith apart from works so that no one can boast. You're not going to go up to heaven someday and say, here's the deal, God, you got to let me in. I was in church 50 out of 52 Sundays a year. I skipped Christmas and Easter because that's when all the crazies come out. Look, God, I read through the Bible four times. You got to let me in. It's just not the way it works. It was his good pleasure. It was to give us the gift of salvation based entirely on our own faith in him, not on our works, just faith. And so if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your future, for your salvation, for your eternal destiny, then he is in you by faith. It's the and that gets us in trouble. And honestly, I don't think a lot of us would say the words like that, but I think on an emotional level, we kind of live like that. On an emotional level, we kind of live like God's pleasure in us. Our salvation is based on us being good enough for him. And so we have these moments where like, you know, probably on Sunday morning, you're like, oh, I was two minutes late for church. I'm probably going to a lesser part of heaven now. Oh, it was just the announcements. Ooh, that was a close one, right? (laughs) Oh, man. I can't believe it. The projector didn't work this Sunday, and I didn't know any of the words. I'm probably not saved. No, none of that is important. But we have, for whatever reason, kind of built in us these guilt complexes that kind of make us feel that way. But it's just not true. It's It's a misrepresentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace through faith, apart from works. For each of us, we have to kind of work through that in our hearts and our minds and settle that fact, settle that reality that the only hope that we have for salvation is that Jesus Christ will save us. It's the only hope we have for salvation. Now, that's not to say we don't do good works. It's not to say we don't try to live a sanctified, godly life. We just have to be very clear on this. We don't do those things to be saved. We do those things because we're saved. To put it in another term, I don't pray a hundred times so I can build up stock in heaven to make sure I can make it all the way there. I pray a hundred times because of the great pleasure of being able to pray to my Savior, to the one who gave his life up for me. I don't read the Bible to earn experience points that are going to get me a better seat in heaven or a bigger mansion or a bigger house in heaven or a better job in heaven. Good heavens, there better not be jobs in heaven. <laughs> like I'm not trying to earn extra credit. 
I read the Bible because this reveals the God who saved me. It's not to earn salvation. It's just because I'm so blessed that I'm saved. And I want to know more about the God who saved me. I want to become more like him. Do you see the difference there? The test is, is all your faith put in Jesus Christ? And I think it was pretty clear that the Corinthians, that that wasn't true. Because they were judging, according to Paul in the earlier chapters, they were judging only on external things. They were boasting about external things. And Paul says, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that we really have. It's the only hope that we really have is to trust in him fully. And Paul, of course, was trying to demonstrate that to the Corinthians. He's trying to correct that in him or in them. Now he's going to begin to change his tone here as he finishes up this chapter, this letter. He's changing his tone now from confronting them about their sin to actually now trying to build them up. That's what he really wants to invest in. That's really who he sees himself as. And so he begins in verse 7 now uh, to pray for them. He says this, now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may be appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. So he's turning now from confronting to edifying, exhorting, or building up. And the first thing he wants to do for them is pray. He has two specific things that he's going to pray for the Corinthian church. The first is that they do no wrong. Now that might, at first blush, sound like it's in contrast to what he just said. Your whole of existence is wrapped up in faith in Jesus Christ. Now stop sinning. It almost sounds like he's putting it back in their court. But again, that's not the reality. It's not that our faith exists in a way that we don't ever work. But we, as James says, we demonstrate our faith by our works. We didn't earn salvation, but because we are the saved, because we have faith in Jesus Christ, we want to do the things that he asks us to do. And so Paul is praying specifically to a church that's struggling with division and sexual sin and judging people wrongly. He's struggling with all of these things in that church. He just, he's just praying that they would stop doing the wrong things. And start doing the right things. By the way, if you're looking for things to pray for your church, for this church, pray that we don't do the wrong things. I would love to say that we've never messed up before. Wouldn't that be cool? I go to the one church that's never made a mistake. Calvary Chapel, Cheyenne. <laughs> that's not true. We make mistakes all the time. Sometimes we can't even figure out how to turn on the projector. Like Things happen, right? But... When we make decisions, let them be good decisions as best as we can. That's what we're praying for. We're praying that we would have the wisdom from God to do the right things as a church collectively, but also as individuals who attend this church, that we would start making the right choices. Now, you're not going to make the right choices all the time. Sometimes you are going to do things that are sinful. But how do you respond to that? What's the right choice when you've sinned? It's the very thing that he's calling this church in Corinth to. It's that they would repent. And as they confess their sins, they're forgiven of their sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. This is what we want to see built within the church. So if you're going to pray for the church of Calvary Chapel Cheyenne, 
Pray that we would not sin, but when we do, we would repent. And I don't mean just the collective leadership of the church, but I mean all the people in the church. I think that's an important aspect. If, you, if you're a praying person in any way, and I hope you are, I hope you pray for our church, I really do. We need it. I know there are people that tell me every week, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. I hope it goes beyond praying for me, although they might be saying, you're the biggest problem in our church, so we're praying for you, Pastor Sean. The biggest danger of this church going south is you, Sean, just so you know. So we're praying for you. Hey, I'll take it. But in general, just be praying for the body of believers here as a church that we would collectively choose right over wrong most of the time. We would, as Paul says here, do no wrong. And then the second thing he prays for him there in verse 9, he says, um, this we also pray that you be, may be made complete. So as he's praying for the church in Corinth, he prays that they would be made complete. He's asking that God would complete the work that he began in them. But this is an important aspect that we have to remember, that every believer and every church is still under construction. It's just not quite done yet. There's still work to be done. I think there is uh, kind of this idea maybe, certainly from a leadership perspective, but maybe within churches is like, yeah, we've got it figured out. We're good to go. Just maintain. Just keep going the right direction. Don't get off track and everything will be fine. But that's not true. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. We have things that we've built up really well and things we haven't done very well that we need to get better at, that we need to improve at. Uh, I take this uh, personally when I think about our church. I think about there are things that uh, the church has taken on because it's kind of like me. And because it's like me, it only looks like me to the outside world. That's a real danger. I think it was Francis Chan uh, when he left his church in Simi Valley. He's kind of a famous pastory guy. He left his church in Simi Valley and uh, his resignation, he said, I think I'm more popular than Jesus to this church. And that's not good. So he left so that the church could find more popularity in Jesus Christ than in him. That being said, when we, when we look at these things, I can collectively or individually or however you want, I can look at our church and I can say we have strengths and we have weaknesses. Our strengths need to get stronger. Our weaknesses need to get really built up. Uh, one of the things I think we are weak as a church is that we are weak in evangelism. I think because I'm not an evangelist by nature, I stand up here, I teach the word, Kind of the people that come to this church are already believers who just want that. They just want that kind of solid, basic, biblical, let's just work through the text. Most unbelievers don't care about any of that. And frankly, if that's all you're really interested in, you don't need a bunch of unbelievers in here messing things up, right? I think as a church, we struggle with evangelism because I'm not a great evangelist. And so I've made it kind of a habit throughout my ministry of praying that God would raise up evangelists in our midst, people to do that. Because I'm not good at it. And it's not that I can't preach the gospel. I do preach the gospel. I know it very well. I think I'm quite effective at preaching the gospel. I'm just not gifted at it. And so I can preach an amazing gospel presentation. And then you have somebody who has the gift of evangelism can kind of do a half-hearted evangelistic message. They get more converts every single time. It's really annoying, to be honest with you. That being said, I think that's a struggle for us as a church, that we haven't done a great job of reaching out into our community. Now, we do have some evangelistic things going on in our church. There are two areas I think we've done well at evangelistically. If you want to see where people come to Christ in our church, you would look at our missions ministry. So we have people that go out. Wednesday night, we'll get a report from One Way Evangelistic Ministries, right? They're going to give a report of the things that they did this summer. And in that report, you're going to hear about people coming to Christ. 
That's exciting stuff. So that's an area we've done good at sharing the gospel with people outside the city of Cheyenne. I still got some people in Cheyenne I'd like to see get saved though. I'd like to see us do better at that. That's a place where we're incomplete as a church. We need to be completed in those things. We need to be built up in those things. The other area I think we do, ministry, I do evangelism well is in children's ministry. It's, it's no accident that the majority of our baptisms are kids. Because our children's ministry does a good job of taking these young people and teaching them the word. And those young people go home and they're like, Mom, have you heard of this Jesus guy? He's amazing. Mom's like, of course I have. I sit in big church. What's wrong with you? No, you know, then you have this whole conversation. The little kid gets saved and then they want to get baptized. It's, it's awesome and it's amazing. But there's some adults in Cheyenne I'd like to see get saved. I think we can do better at those things. I think we can do better at fellowship. I think that we are, are, are pretty good at Sunday morning. We have a good service for the most part. We do pretty well, right? But I think it's the rest of the week where it's really kind of hard. I think that, and this is a complaint we've had over and over throughout the years, that people will say we're not a very welcoming church or not a very friendly church. And I never know exactly how to fix that, to be honest with you. Like, I don't know what that means, really. I know what it means, but I don't know exactly what to do about it. But I, there should be within the church just this natural fellowship and love for one another because we're all believers. We're all in the same place. We're all wanting Jesus Christ to interact in our life. We need those things. But I think we can get better at it. And we're always working on it. We're always trying to get new home fellowships and things going. We have ups and downs just like any church. But I think it's something we can improve on. That we would just see in ourselves the desire to have our best friends be the friends that we have at church. The friends that we sit next to. And I get it. We're Wyoming. We created, we invented social distancing. It was ours first before the rest of the world took it on. Like I know how it works on Sunday morning. You're like, okay, I'm a family of four. I need six seats. You got a Bible on each end, jackets strung out in between. Because you got to have that one, two, three seat buffer between you and any other family that might come in the door. I get it, I approve of it, it's wonderful, but it's okay, first service, this actually happened, somebody like picked up their Bible and was like, uh-oh, busted, <laughs> like, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. All I'm saying is, across those empty seats, it's okay to say hello to the people when they get here. It is okay. It's okay to be kind of a greeter at heart, I think we can work on that. Uh, it's something that I would hope would become more natural to us, that uh, churches have greeter ministries. I think that's important. I think it's great, particularly when those greeters in the greeter's ministry are natural smilers. I am a terrible greeter because I have a natural scowl. I'm, Hi. I've got the door for you. Morning. You're letting in the wind. Come on. Let's get in here, right? Like, I, I get it. There are some people that just naturally are hospitable people, that they're just very encouraging. They're great greeters. We should have that. But I do think it should expand beyond a specific ministry in a church, and it should just become kind of the heart and the character of people who, because we're loved by Jesus Christ, love one another. Imagine walking into a church on any given Sunday morning, and everybody wanted to say hi to you, and everybody looked friendly. Now, I know that's pie in the sky, right? But we're not complete yet. That's something we can aim for. It's a target we can aim for. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. It's not just about building up the church. It's about the individuals who sit in the rows, right? Each and every one of you is incomplete. You're a work in progress. You're under construction. And Paul would say to the church, we should pray as he does that this church would be completed, that God would continue to build us up to be more like his son, Jesus Christ, that all of us, it doesn't matter how old you are, 
All of us have areas that we can grow in our faith. All of us. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Doesn't matter how long you've been to church. You have things that you can grow in. You can become more gracious. You can become more kind. You can become more loving. You become a better discipler, a better evangelist. Whatever it is, these things can happen. But it makes sense that we pray about them so that God can do those things in us, that he would be building us up in this way. Paul has his uh, closing here in verse 11 through 14. Um, Oh, I skipped pastor, or chapter, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 10. I should point that out. Um, verse 10 is the one we mentioned the first week. It's the purpose for Paul's writing this book. He says, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing down. Paul sees his ministry as building people up. So he's asking that that church would be made complete, he takes personal responsibility for that. He feels like that's his job, is to build people up. And it's particularly annoying to him when he has to take the time to tear people down because of their sin. What he really wants to do is encourage and build people up. Some people have that kind of naturally, whatever it is. Paul feels like the Lord gave him that responsibility to build up the church. Some people are renovation projects. Some people just need to be torn down and start over. Paul's tired of tearing down. He just wants to build he just wants to build. That's who he wants to be. He wants to be the guy that builds these people up. And I think most people at the heart level want to be an encourager. They want to build people up. But I think most of us also probably struggle with that. I know I do. I read things like that and I always feel instant guilt that I'm not more encouraging. There's so many times where I've been hanging out with somebody and then we go our separate ways and afterwards I thought, mm, I should have said something nice to them today. I should have encouraged them in their faith or I should have told them I was proud of them. I was glad to get to see them today. But I, I'm sarcastic. I tell them, I'm glad you saw me today. What a pleasure that must have been for you. You're like, what is wrong with me? There's stuff messed up. I'm incomplete. I got issues. Sarcasm. Not a spiritual gift. Bad, Sean. Um, Paul wants that to be his ministry. He wants to build up the people in the church. He takes responsibility for that. So yes, he prays about it because he trusts that God will do that, but he takes personal responsibility for it as well. And then in verse 11, he finishes up here with this great closing. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul does a great job at the end of his books, exhorting, spurring on, encouraging the believers. He's not really teaching them anything here. He's just basically saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's like a laundry list of things that he's trying to spur them on to. He's not even praying. He's not asking God for this. He's putting it in their, record, their court. These are the things I want you to do. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, greet one another. And then he has kind of these other parts in there where he talks about what God is gonna do for them, that God will love them and that God is the one who gives them grace, love, and fellowship. So he's trying to inspire them by spurring them on to these kind of greater things. Uh, I want to just take a moment to talk about verse 11, that first one there, rejoice. 
Uh, this can throw people off depending on what translation of the Bible you're using. You may not have the word rejoice there. You might have the word farewell. And those two words do not sound at all like the same word, right? But actually in the Greek, it's the same exact word. And so the translators have to look at the context and decide what word goes there. And so some of them look at it and say, it's gotta be farewell because it's the end of the book. And others say it can't be farewell because it's the first thing on his list of exhortations. And so different translators have come to these different conclusions. But that kind of freaks Christians out sometimes where we think, oh man, we can't trust the Bible. That's not what it is. The reality is Greek is not a secret decoder ring away from English. You can't just be like, every time this Greek word comes up, it's B7 on my decoder ring, and that equals this English word. It doesn't work that way. The Greek language is much like our own. Every individual word could have multiple meanings and you have to gather it from the context. And so we have, for instance, in in America, in English, we have the word wind and the word wind spelled exactly the same. I am so sorry for anybody who's trying to learn English. It makes no sense. You have to judge from the context. Does it mean wind? Well, you ask yourself, is there string involved? It must mean wind. And if there's Wyoming involved, it must mean wind, right? It's the same word, but it has two different meanings. Same thing happens here in the Greek. So don't let those things frustrate you. The translators are doing their best from the context they have to give us the original meaning as close as possible. I like the word rejoice there because he basically puts it in the court of the individual believer and says, joy is your responsibility. It's a choice that you make to rejoice. It's not something you're waiting to happen to you. Like, man, if the Broncos could just figure it out this season, I could finally be happy. I'm not waiting on anybody for joy. My joy came from the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ, and that will never change. It puts it back in our court, which is cool because the next one, he says, be made complete. Well, you remember, he was praying that they would be made complete. He puts it in God's court. He then says he wants to build people up. He puts it in his court. And then he tells them, but you have the responsibility to be made complete complete. He puts it in their court. You see that he's taking this from every angle and looking at it from those three perspectives. God will help you with this. I will help you with this, but you have to have responsibility for your own growth and your faith that you as an individual person, you have to have some investment in this. And if you're not going to invest in it, you're not going to get it. You're not going to put the time and the energy that it takes to build yourself up and strengthen yourself. Uh, He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to be, uh, these next ones are pretty cool, like-minded and live in peace. He wants them to be unified. Uh, 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 I forget the guy's name now. Anyway, there was a pastor I was listening to at a pastor's conference, and he said, this is the great unanswered prayer of Jesus, because he prayed in John that they would be one. And then he looks at the church and he says, ugh. Not quite there yet, but Paul puts that responsibility on the church to be like-minded and to live in peace. Now, it's really hard. That's a big deal that he's asking. How is it that we can be like-minded? If you've ever gotten 100 people together in any place, you're just not going to be like-minded, right? You're going to have different thoughts, different opinions, different directions, different hopes. You're going to only become like-minded when you become like Jesus Christ. If his is the mind, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to take on the mind of Christ, Paul tells us in other books. 
that that would be the mind that we would be like, that we would all have that as the standard that we would come back to. That's why we go to the scriptures over and over and over again. It's the standard we keep returning to so that we can have that one thing in common, that one thing that we're becoming like Jesus Christ. He tells them to also be it to peace, to live in peace. Uh, an interesting thing, but if you think through your life and ask yourself this question, who are the people that I have conflict with in my life? I'm supposed to live at peace with them. I have the responsibility to live at peace with them. Even if they've done the wrong thing, it's my responsibility. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, as far as possible for you, live at peace with all people. Now, the other people may never join the party, but you have responsibility to invest all that you can as far as is possible for you to make peace with people. So in every conflict we have, we have a responsibility to pursue peace with that person. Whether they receive it or not, that's up to them. We're going to do our part. We're going to do everything we can to live at peace with them. That's the responsibility of the believers in the church. I like here in verse 12, he tells us to greet one another with a holy kiss. I like that because it's not culturally appropriate anymore. So we don't do that one. Um, I will say that I once tried to kind of make a joke out of this. And it never works when I think I'm funny. It's the natural humor that comes out that works. But when I think I'm funny, it never works. It's a Sunday. We've got all these people in here. The last verse was greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm so excited. I pulled out a bag of Hershey Kisses. And I just start chucking them to people in the audience. I'm having a good old time. And so our, our Holly was back in the sound system back then. And she goes, I want one. So I chucked this thing as hard as I could back there. And it didn't quite make it. And then the back row was a gal, Robin, who thankfully still attends our church, who is blind. Whack! Hit her right in the head. And she says, my fault. I didn't see it coming. Still to this day, this is probably like 10, 12 years later, still to this day, when she comes to church, she's like, where are you, Sean? She reaches in her purse and she throws candy at me, which is awesome. I love that, actually, because I get candy out of the deal. I've started greeting her like this. Yeah, come on, come on. <laughs> I don't think we need to be greeting one another the holy kiss. In certain cultures, that does make sense. The, actually, it stopped for a while in the Christian culture because the Greeks and the Romans uh, perceived it as a sexual thing. And because that then made it look like it was something it wasn't, eventually that kind of fell out of favor. But in other cultures, again, it's kind of come back. So you will see still cultures around the world where they will greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm saying we don't need to greet each other with a holy kiss, but we really do need to greet one another, that we should be welcoming people. That should just be who we are by nature. We should have that tendency. And so if you're like me, you don't have a natural smile, you're missing those two upper muscles that make that happen. I mean, I can do the joker thing, like, hi, how are you today? It's good to see you. That, everybody knows that's fake. But finding some way to greet people that they would feel welcome. Finding some way to encourage the people that you come into contact. These are the instructions, the exhortations that he's giving to the church there at the very end. Now, verse 14 is uh, fascinating to me. Uh, it's kind of just a traditional uh, blessing that he's praying over the church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Two things interesting about this. Number one is that it's the Trinity there. 
And so he's talking about each part of the Trinity and he, he kind of assigns a portion of the work of God to different parts of the Trinity. And so the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the love of God and it's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But understand that Jesus is God, God the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So you're collectively receiving from God grace, love, and fellowship. But each one of those seem to be kind of distinct to the work that that person of the Godhead, that person of the Trinity has done. And so here we have grace coming from Jesus Christ, which means we've received our salvation with no merit of our own. It's God's unmerited favor. It was given to us. Again, it goes back to that test. Was I saved by grace through faith apart from works? Am I trusting in God instead of myself? Uh, That love itself comes from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then fellowship is an interesting one here. Fellowship in this case is that we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That we are in fellowship, in relationship, in friendship with the Holy Spirit who is God. So we're in community with God himself. And he Praise this as if it's a blessing over the people of the church in Corinth. So I'm going to end up the book the same way as him. I'm going to say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for this book and thankful for the completion of making our way through it. Lord, I know that you're going to minister to us as people, uh, even beyond the things that are said today, that your spirit can continue to take this word and restore it in our hearts. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be complete, that you would help us to avoid doing wrong, that we would avoid sin, that we would seek to be on target with our life and follow after you and be conformed to your son. Lord, I would pray that you would help us to be in greater fellowship with you and one another, that you would allow us to be better at spreading the gospel to the city of Cheyenne. Would you build us up as a church in those areas that we are the weakest, I would pray today. Uh, Father, I'm so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that because of him, uh, that we have you forevermore, that we have a salvation that's assured forevermore. Uh, Father, if there's anybody in the room today that just needs that encouragement, that they're saved by grace through faith, they can be encouraged in that today and recognize that they have in them the son who is Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.